In this episode with pediatric dentist Dr. Emma Ray Chowdhury, we share about the management of the child in dental pain. What are the best guidelines? And on that note, the guidelines we discuss and the advice Emma offers is very much based on UK guidelines, specifically the STCEP guidelines, which I will make available to download below. And this might be different to those in the US or all around the world. Ultimately, you guys at Patricia Ranti are an international community. So remember that a lot of the advice here is very UK centric and there are some differences culturally and internationally in terms of guidelines. So just bear that in mind as we discuss best management for children. Hello, Patricia Rati. I'm Jazz Glati, and welcome back to the Protrusive Dental Podcast. Uh, we're covering a pediatric dentistry theme, which is something that we haven't covered in a long time. And I want to cover something that is really real world, something that affects general dentists day in, day out, and children in pain. Like, I hate to see it. As a dentist, as a father, I hate to see children patient who are in pain. It's also one of the most stressful things that a dentist can face because it's very difficult to get a good history. It's very difficult to do an exam. Like, some children will just not let you examine their mouths properly. So, how how can you get the best diagnosis? And in terms of managing them, there's so many different variables and considerations which you'll hear about today. You know, we talk about deep caries, reversal pitis, irreversal pitis, abscesses, and how best to manage those in your patients. But these can vary so much depending on the overall status of the child's oral health, the attitude of the child and the parent, and also how many teeth are actually involved. So remember that this episode is offering guidelines and it'll give you some good information about what to do at the emergency visit, but also how to do a comprehensive exam afterwards. The protrusive dental pearl I have for you is related to pediatric dentistry. It's the use of something called Fuji triage by GC as an alternative to fissure sealants for actually sealing fissures. So let me give you more information about this. Recently, I saw my son Ishan uh, in the dental chair because he's got these super deep fissures. And I discussed this with Emma in the episode, actually. He's got these super deep fissures. And every time he eats something, and he opens them out. I see whatever he's eating, would be it Oreos to bananas to raisins or rice. I'll always find it just packed in his molars, right? They're always stuffed with food. So I wanted to do some sort of sealant or some sort of coverage of these deep fissures. Now, on the right side, I was able to get enough compliance to do the standard fissure sealant. So the whole etch and use something called Helioseal to seal those fissures. So now when food gets stuck, I know it's not going to be causing caries in the E's and D's. Now the left side, by the time I got to the left side, his compliance was dwindling and he wasn't the easiest patient in the world to treat. So in that scenario, I remembered from my training at dental school that there's something called Fuji triage that we can use as an alternative to fissure sealant when you're struggling with cooperation. So it's like a bright orange colored restoration and you just get the teeth dry and just squirt some in. You can use your finger just to rub this Fuji triage material in and it's self-setting. So now I look at his mouth, I can see on the right side of his mouth, he's got the fissure sealants and on the left side, he's got this Fuji triage material covering his fissures and it does the trick. It can work. So if next time you're struggling to get the ideal optimum level of moisture control, the compliance is great and you don't think you can get the light cure in, just stick some Fuji triage in there, rub it in with your fingers into the fissures and it will help you get out of a tricky situation. Let's now join Dr. Emma Ray Chowdhury and I'll catch you in the outro. Dr. Emma Ray Chowdhury, specialist pediatric dentist, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, good, thanks. How are you? Absolutely brilliant. You are, of course, married to AJ, who we had in the podcast talking about yeah. internal bleaching. And I really thanked him for that connection because pediatric dentistry is such an important topic for the general dentist because it is a source of joy. It's a source of variety for us, but it's also a big 
pain area in the sense yeah. that when you have a nervous patient, when you have a patient, a child patient who's crying, when you have that scenario where your child patient is in pain, it is devastating for the parents, it's devastating for the dentist, and, and that can be a real source of stress for the dentist. So I, I thank you in advance for your time to discuss a really important topic. But just before we dive into the different diagnoses we can make within our child patient and what's causing their pain and how to uh, best practice for management and advice. So I think it's going to be a really, really good episode and the, the kind of themes we're talking about. Just tell us a little about yourself. Uh, how did you get into pediatric dentistry? How did you figure out that that was your calling, your niche within dentistry? So I graduated in 2009 from Newcastle, moved to London, did VT, as it was called in those days. Really busy practice. And I just knew that kind of general practice wasn't for me. I wanted to specialise. And I thought that was orthodontics. I think DF2 posts were kind of a bit more available in those days. I don't know how available they are. But I managed to get this one at St. George's, which was orthodontics and paediatric dentistry and then six months oral surgery. And while I was there, I just, I really liked ortho. It was interesting, really enjoyed it. But I loved peds and I just thought, this is what I love doing. And yeah, it kind of went from there. I also met my husband, so pretty good job. Yeah, he was um, a registrar there. <laughs> Two in one. Yeah, yeah. specialist degree and, and, and the husband. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. And he's just a great guy. Honestly, uh, I really loved talking to him on the, on the episodes. And uh, you've got th- three children, so busy, busy family. And your practice owners, how do you fit it all in? I don't know. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a bit, it's getting a bit easier because our youngest is 18 months. So she's not at the crazy baby kind of stage but it it is a lot to fit in I find I I know you've got kids I find the sickness when they're ill trying to juggle work and illness is the hardest so this has been exactly our scenario Uh in the last few days so uh, last night I got six and a half hours sleep which for me is good but the last two nights combined were six hours because my four-month-old my four-year-old and my wife all sick with like a coughing, oh. a sneezing, sore throats, everything. So yes, I can definitely echo that because all the emotions are very raw in me right now. So yeah, in moments of sickness, that's when it's really yeah. challenging. Uh, yeah. How many days a week are you clinical at the moment? Just, it's nice to know about, you know, work-life balance for people in different stages of their life and career, right? So I, I do four days at work, but not all of those are clinical. So I also do, because it's our own practice, it was a squat practice. It used to be bathroom shop and we converted it into a dental practice specialist I'm trying to think something witty or funny to say linking (laughs) bathrooms and dentists I can't quite do it yet but I'll come to it later (laughs) um yeah so we yeah we turned it into a dental practice so it's really been kind of a big job so kind of a work in progress to convert it into that and kind of we're gradually taking more and more specialists as associates so I do a lot of managing of that so about one or two days a week I do practice managing and then Two to three days a week I do clinical at the minute. And I find that specialist paediatrics in private practice, maybe it's growing now, but very difficult to find. Yeah. And when I used to work in Oxford, we used to refer all the way to Richmond, West London, actually, at at that point. And so for a lot of parents, they have to drive around a long way. Do you find that your child patients come from all over? Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, I think we're the only practice offering specialist private peds within Sussex and Kent there's, there's there's a lovely practice in Surrey so I get patients from all over coming down L- London's a bit more you know got a few more options now but yeah some areas of the country will have absolutely no access to peds even in 
you know, hospital and things. So it is difficult. In hospitals, they've got like these big waiting lists. In yeah. community, they've got these huge waiting lists. So I think the more we can do in primary care uh-huh. uh, setting would, would be good. And I just find that when you have children with multiple carious lesions, they can be really, really difficult for, for general dentists to manage at that stage because then a lot of these patients will be looking at GAs. And when you're, yeah. looking, at, when you're looking at GAs, then you're looking at these waiting lists and, and then managing these patients in, in, in pain and antibiotics. So it's a really nasty cycle. Is that something that you, do you see that actually? Do you see children coming in and they just just you look at them their mouths and you think, okay, this child needs a GA. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I offer in the clinic, I do local anaesthetic. I do lots of minimally invasive treatments. So treatment that you don't need LA for like hall crowns or SDF. So trying to get around that cooperation. I do inhalation sedation, but that's kind of suitable for your four five plus. So lots of people think they can do it on two and three year olds, but it, they just don't have the cooperation to understand it. So yeah, the, there is that kind of group in the middle. So maybe you've got your three-year-olds with loads of caries or even your really anxious seven, eight, nine-year-olds who've got loads of caries, but inhalation sedation is just not going to touch them. So yeah, so sometimes I have to say, I'm, I'm really sorry, but you do need a general anaesthetic and yeah. And have you got any established private pathways? Obviously, the hospital exists, the waiting list along. Do you work with like a private maxillofacial unit? And then do you actually go over yourself to, to offer that care? I'm just keen to yeah. learn more about that. So no, I, I don't offer a, um, a GA list. We have a MaxVac surgeon who works with us, who's brilliant. And he does anything maxillofacial under GA. So we can refer to him. But obviously, that wouldn't involve your fillings, your crowns, anything like that. If any of my children who I see in practice need a private, want a private GA, it would be referring up to one of the central London clinics and they do offer private GAs. Okay, so pathways do exist. But what we want to discuss today is hopefully preventing our patients to get to that point. But that's a whole public health matter, obviously. Uh, But, you know, what what I really want to home in on is to help the general dentist who's facing the child in pain. So let's let's kick off and and discuss about this fairly big topic. Now, uh, I specifically said in, in our email exchanges that I, we shouldn't cover trauma yeah. because uh, a couple of reasons. Trauma is just so vast in itself. And, and B, trauma is one of those things which is really important. Like I saw uh, the other day uh, a complex uh, enamel dentine fracture almost exposing the pulp. But I get like once every six months yeah. I see a trauma and, and I look at the guidelines to do it. But this is something that we see on a much more regular basis. Sure. And I think this is going to be uh, more applicable to daily care, the child in pain. So we're not going to talk about trauma. We will touch on MIH, which you rightly mentioned before we hit the record button. So we'll talk about that as well. But let's talk about the different common presentations of children in pain. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, because you mentioned to me earlier that as a specialist referral clinic, you often are seeing them once the initial pain management has been done by the GDP and they've been identified as, okay, they need specialist care, then they come and see you. So what you see may be different to what they see in primary care yeah. just because of the nature of you being in specialist care. So yeah. let's bear that in mind. But uh, what we want to do is offer some helpful guidelines for the dentist. So what are the different presentations of children in pain, the most common ones? Yeah, so yeah, you're quite right. I'm often very lucky and the, the general dentists who've seen them are doing all the hard work, getting them out of pain, looking after them, looking after the infection. And then I get them for the kind of doing a thorough assessment. I've got lots of time. So I really do appreciate it. It's really hard 
seeing a child. Emma, it's a bit, it's a bit like endodontists, uh-huh. right? Endodontists, right? So uh, we general dentists are doing the extirpations yeah. and uh, managing the hot pulps. The endodontist sees a nice empty canal, no yeah. bleeding. They they do the, the you know we set them up, they knock them down kind of thing. Uh, so I, I always think about endodontists, and you guys are in a similar way that uh, you know, and I appreciate that you said that way that okay, you have a bit more time, uh, and the patient, and the child is not in act, use, not usually Usually, in active yeah. pain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure that happens though. But yeah, it's good to have that insight. So yeah, so I think PEDS is a really broad spectrum. So I'm going to kind of divide it up. So you can have your babies, toddlers, you can have your... Pre- uh, and the way that you examine them and the way that you get the history will be different for everyone. So you've got your really young kids, your babies, your toddlers, who are going to be pre-communitive. You're going to be able to get a history from the parents only really. And that's going to be asking about kind of changes in behavior, changes in eating, are they holding their mouth? Are they avoiding letting you brush? Are they chewing on objects? All those kind of things. And, you know, we've both got young children. We know how hard it can be, even for parents, to tell if their child's in pain or if they're just doing something weird with their mouth. So sometimes it's it's not really easy to get a history, particularly on the young children. But if you're hearing that they're suddenly not sleeping, you know, that they're really holding their mouth, and this can also apply to children with special needs because they often exhibit these kind of behaviours because they can't vocalise or kind of understand enough to vocalise what's going on. So that that kind of history would be for your younger child. If you're getting into your kind of your school age or preschool, but they've, you know, they're able to chat to you. Again, you're going to be getting most of the history from the parents, but you're going to get a bit more from the child. And... I'm going to be asking things like, do your teeth hurt? Before I've used different words and I've realised some children just can't understand them. So I've said, is your tooth tender? And they've looked at me like, what's tender? So you have to be careful, use like quite, you know, words they're going to get. Does your your tooth hurt? Is it ouchy? Can you tell which tooth is hurting? And then ask the parents, are they waking up at night? Are they avoiding eating? Are they avoiding drinking? Have they had episodes of infection? Are they, have they had facial swellings? Because sometimes you won't be the first person they've seen or they might have gone to the doctor before or, you know. So getting that kind of thorough history. Are they needing Calpol? That, are they needing painkillers before bed? Are school letting you know that they're in pain? So those things that you perhaps wouldn't ask to an adult patient. And then you've got your kind of your final group of kid patients who aren't really kids anymore. They're your teenagers, kind of your 14, your 15 year olds. And they're pretty much adults in the way that you treat them, what you're going to do. But you've probably just got a parent sitting there attached to them and they might be a bit more nervous. But for those children, I do a really, if they're in pain, and I appreciate this takes time. So I know you may have that short, however long, 10 minute, 20 minute pain slot. But I think getting to a diagnosis can really kind of funnel you down to what you need to be doing that appointment and which tooth you need to be treating and which you can be leaving so I, I use the kind of the acronym Socrates to try and get a structured pain history in the older kids I don't use it in the younger ones but I kind of get around it by asking all those questions so I, I work out where the site of the pain is when it started the onset the character of the pain whether it's kind of a, a dull throbbing pain a sharp shooting pain whether it radiates anywhere or whether it's quite well localised to a tooth. Any associations, so does it come on when they wake up, when they go to sleep, you know, anything like that. Timing, how long the pain will last for, how often they get the pain. Is it weekly? Is it daily? Is it once every few months? Exacerbation or alleviation, so does it only happen when they're having cold foods, hot drinks, biting, and does anything alleviate it like painkillers, 
they have they needed antibiotics and then finally the severity out of 10 is this a 10 out of 10 i would do anything to kind of get rid of this pain or is it just you two three out of 10 and it's quite mild and kind of taking that history along with what dental history they've had before what they may have done kind of judging their cooperation as well from the parents and also just from how they are in the room that's how I kind of start my history with them and what I tend to do with the younger ones to try and warm them up a bit and I appreciate this takes time again but I get them to sit on the regular chairs rather than on the dental chair to start with and I say Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sit on mum's lap we're just going to have a nice chat you can get used to us and sometimes I find that they come in the room and they're clinging to their parent but by the time you've sat there and you've asked them silly questions about what their favourite thing to watch on TV is and you know I, I really do do quite a lot of warming them up they're quite happy to jump on the chair quite often. I find that, uh, Emma, my, my, my colleagues that say I don't enjoy seeing children, the, my colleagues that openly say that, they are their personas and personalities are, are not very childlike themselves. No. I'm very childish. I like to talk about Toy Story and I like to talk about the latest films and uh, my son's a huge, me and my son's both huge Spider-Man fans. Uh-huh. So I find it very easy to connect with children and come to a level yeah. and be all goofy and funny and stuff. Whereas I find that adults who struggle to just pre- pretend that yeah. they're a child don't have as much success in rapport building yeah. so I think a big tip there is to make sure you get down to a child's level be a little bit childish be a little bit yeah. goofy be a little funny show the stickers and stuff I think that greatly helps to to, to get the child on your side and get them to, to comply with the instructions that are coming would you agree with that? Definitely and I, I, I always I try and do something when they walk in the room so I'll look and I'll say oh they've got pink shoes or a glittery top or a Spider-Man I'll go oh I love your pink shoes I mean I wouldn't do this to a 15 year old but I'm talking about one of ones. <laughs> I love your pink shoes. And it tends to build some rapport because then they're like looking at their shoes. I'm like, are they new? And, you know, just you really do have to put a bit of effort in and it takes time. So that's why I really do feel for people in primary care. I've got a short appointment. Try to, I'm saying all these things that I do and I appreciate it's really hard. The most common child emergency that, that I see, so once you've done the history, kind of, you know, if they're saying it hurts only when they're eating on that side, they're already uh-huh. eating on that side. And the most common one I'll see, you know, it's a shame, is if I was to give you an example avatar child, it would be an eight-year-old or a uh-huh. seven-year-old with a carious lower D yeah. and an abscess. That's like yeah. the standard, I find, of emergency, like the, the, the median emergency, if you like, of all yeah. the two child emergencies. And at that point, it's, okay, antibiotics. Literally, I cannot even touch the tooth. We can't do anything. There's a clear abscess there. Uh, it's antibiotics because the child will not let you extract their tooth that day. And then let it settle down, come back in, let's check things again, uh, and then go for the whole radiographs and assess, okay, what's the damage elsewhere? If we go with that example, and if you give me any sort of specialist inputs that you have in terms of best management for these children abscesses, and then we'll talk about the, the ones that are perhaps a little bit earlier and a little bit after. For example, b- before then would be just a child with uh, caries and pulpitis mm-hmm. versus the child who's now got chronic sinuses and multiple sinuses. So we'll go either side of that. Sure. Let's talk about the child with the abscess first. So, so I, I think I kind of missed off a little bit with my assessment of the kid. But yeah, I, I would be at that visit when they've come in pain, I would ideally want to be trying to get some x-rays if I can. And I know, again, that's hard, but I, d- I just find without x-rays, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't know how big that cavity is. I, I don't know whether it's into the pulp. I mean, if you've got an abscess, you've got, you know, you know how big that cavity is really, but you don't know what's going on in the rest of the mouth. So I spend quite mm. a bit of time trying to get some bite wings, or vertical bite wings if I can. And I know that's probably, apart from giving local anaesthetic, that's probably the second least favourite thing for people to do with kids 
I would imagine. Some things I have which I find helpful for that, I get the tabs. I don't know if you've seen them. They're like, I used to be able to get stickers that you stuck on to the x-rays. And instead of having an x-ray holder, this is all in the SDCEP guidance, by the way. They've got pictures of how to do x-rays on kids. So it's quite useful if you want a kind of a visual. Brilliant. We'll put that in. I use, yeah, so I use a size zero film, which you may or may not have access to in your practice. Mm -hmm. We do. And then I use either a tab or a foam tab. And what you do, if you've not seen it, is you stick it onto the x-ray, like where you would want the midpoint of the x-ray, and they bite on that rather than having the whole holder and absolutely everything. And then you aim the tube to the x-ray. And I find lots of kids who can't tolerate it with a holder because it's too big and clunky and plastic, you can get x-rays on. And I've managed it on really small little kids, like three-year-olds, that sort of age. I mean, that's a top tip right there. And if anyone's uh, multitasking, you know, listen to that bit again. You know, we'll just emphasise that the right tools for the right job. And if you're struggling to get bite wings on kids, it's probably because you're using a size two film and you're using oh, the, yeah. the adult stuff, which is not going to work. It's just, you know, we, you know, we ordered in specifically when I joined the practice, pediatric bite wing holders and size yeah. zeros. But I, I appreciate that what you're suggesting is better, which is, I've seen those sticky pads. We don't have them, but I will get Zoe to order some because I think they are better. I think they're pretty cheap as well. I don't think they're... Yeah, mm -hmm. they don't cost a fortune. Mm -hmm. And you can also rotate them so you don't have to use them as a horizontal bite wing. You can use them as a vertical bite wing. And I find that really useful if you're wanting to look at the interradicular areas on primary teeth for any sign of infection, how close the successor is, how long this tooth's got left in the mouth, that sort of thing. And some kids who are quite gaggy, they may prefer it that way around because although it's a bit longer, it's not going so far back in the mouth. So, I, so, I, so with this, have you managed a child? Emma, if you don't mind, just yeah, on the sure. topic of uh, radiographs, children who have the infantile swallow and they sort of stick their tongue out just before they bite together. So before yeah. they bring their teeth together, they yeah. stick their tongue out. Those are, are, the, are the trickiest. Yeah. So what I've usually tried to do is get them to have a swallow first yeah. uh, and then uh, tell them, I'll just be pushing on your tongue a little bit and I'll just get you well. slowly close together. And that's and usually that, that works out. Anything you want, you can you can help help us out with these issues? Yeah, that's a constant. That's the, probably the most common thing with x-rays. I think I, I tried them on my own daughter and I think she did that as well, uh, but we managed them. So I, I, I act a bit silly and I say, like you've got cheeky Mr. Tongue and I'm going to be pushing cheeky Mr. Tongue out the way with my x-ray. And I show them, I get them to have a feel of the x-ray, I get them to have a feel around it and I'll say, look, it's not, there's nothing rough on it, there's nothing sharp, it's a piece of cardboard. But in your mouth, it's really sensitive, so everything feels different. And cheeky Mr. Tongue's going to want to get involved. And again, this isn't for a 15-year-old because they would just roll their eyes at you. This is your kind of younger kid. And I'm putting it next to the tongue, and they probably look like they're going to close, and then their tongue flips it over the teeth, and you think, back again. And I might have, I don't know, five, six goes at that, and eventually I go, yes, you've done it. And they manage to get the teeth together, and then I run to the machine, press the button, and we're done. So it is a lot of... But I just mm. find them invaluable. It's, it's not just me then struggling with that. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. It's cheeky Mr. Tongue. <laughs> That's right. I love that. Cheeky Mr. Tongue. Okay, that. we're going to add that to our vocabulary, vocab list of, of child-friendly terms. And so, but my, my worry is, I'm just, just to make this appeal to the GDP in practice, uh, talking about that abscess again, very often I, I find that getting a, any pressure on that tooth, any, any radiographs yeah. on that day, when it's yeah. a clear abscess, yeah. do you think, it will be okay for the GDP who has that, you know, 10-minute emergency. Their child is clearly, oh, you know, yeah. they've got a, a febrile a fever and stuff and having the cowpole and, and, and they just need some, you know, an amoxicillin suspension to skip on the radiographs on, on that yeah. occasion. Yeah, think. of course. Of course, you've got to do what you can do. I think for comprehensive treatment planning, you need radiographs. 
but you've got to do what 100%. you can do on that day. So there's some kids I can't take radiographs for because they're not going to let me. And if on that day they're in pain, you think they're unwell, they're systemically unwell, you can justify antibiotics. Yeah, that's obviously the right course of action. But I think it's important to say to the parents and to, and to also record in your notes from a medical legal kind of perspective that you've advised them that this is an emergency visit, you've focused it on that corner of the mouth, they need to come back because it's likely they've got problems elsewhere for a full exam and that you haven't done a full exam on that day. And then check the abscess has gone down, get one of your team, if, if you're able to give them a call, check it's gone down and get them back, properly do an exam and, and let the parents Emma, know. I find that a lot of GDPs are, like once they do bring the child back, I well, find that a lot of GDPs are, I don't know, shy or yeah. not proactive in taking radiographs as, yeah. as often as we would like. Yeah. And this is just an admission. I, I, I like to take them, but a lot of colleagues do not like to take them. I just find from, from what I've, I was trained by Helen Rod at, at, at Sheffield yeah. and her words always stuck with me that when you take bite wings, you're able to diagnose six to eight times more caries than you are just, just clinically, yeah. right? And so you're missing a lot of data. And sometimes I take these bite wings and I think, whoa, yeah. clinically the situation looked amazing, but these Ds are absolutely shocked. Yeah, sometimes I see, I mean, the reason you can't see holes often in kids like you can in adult teeth is they've got really broad, wide contact points on primary teeth. So it's, you probably, yeah, it, so it's, it's hidden underneath the contact point. And until it's got quite big and it's really broken through, you can't see a cavity. And on most kids, I use my loops. So I'm looking at them, I'm drying their teeth, I'm having a really good look. And sometimes I can't even see that kind of shadowing of the marginal ridge. But you take the bite wing and you're like, whoa, that one's nearly pulpal. Yeah, I, I think I would miss a lot if I didn't take bite wings. But I appreciate, I, I mean, I think there was a post recently on Facebook, people talking about when to take x-rays and kids that I saw. And I saw there's a really big variation. Mm -hmm. And lots of people weren't saying they're not taking them because they, they don't want to, they can't be bothered. They just felt that it was over irradiation. So I think there's lots of reasons that people don't take them. It's not all just because they don't have time or things like that, that there are just different schools of thought on it. But for me, they're an absolute must. I can't diagnose without them. What's the youngest age? Like, Imagine we're not talking about pain anymore. Just for yeah. a brief second, we're talking about uh, a routine child examination. At what age for your routine child they've been seeing, they've got, they appear to be low caries risk, uh -huh. let's say. What, what age should you first attempt bite wings? So just give you a baseline and also make sure in that, and they're not in that scenario where they have got all these caries, which wasn't obvious clinically. And then yeah. based on that and all the other information about their caries risk, you can then set intervals, right? So, yeah, so I, I don't do many routine patients anymore because we're like a specialist referral centre, but I did used to in a private practice. So the SDSEP guidance recommends that you could think about start taking them from four, and that's for your regular patients without evidence of caries. As I said, I will take them younger than that if I'm able to, if I've got pathology, so if I've got a reason to take them. If I've got a kid, though, they're five or, or four or five, and I know they've got really low likely caries instance i probably wouldn't start at four if i can have a really good look i might start at five but that sort of age but it's pretty young that i'd be looking at starting i did my own daughter at five if that's any treating your own children is like it's traumatic in a way for the dentist i i, I treated my son the other day actually he, he's got some really deep fissures on his d's like Ew. extremely deep every time he eats something like his d's just whatever he's eaten is inside the, the the lower d's and he's actually so he's got really deep fissures and so he kept bugging me so i saw him i did fissure sealants uh, on the right and at this point i made a video of this and at this point his compliance was really not great and i wasn't going to get to the left side so then i had to use a um, fuji triage uh -huh. to get cotton rolls in right. and tr fuji triage fissure sealant 
silence is that naughty am i naughty if in that sort of dying moment i had to just switch to a fuji trio that's all. the only thing i can get in that's a technique yeah that's a technique for okay. pre shift kids yeah it's a finger stump technique Some, sometimes they even recommend yes. sixes so yeah you've got to do what you can do to in the situation it's the two-month review suggests everything is going well and they're both uh, the mm. fish scenes on the right and the Fuji triage on the left is, is still going. So I'll keep the, well the, the Petrusarati updated year by year on how how those hold up. But I just feel so much better now. And you know what is really... No, okay, this is, this is really interesting to talk about, uh, Emma. Mm-hmm. It was so good to see under my five times loops my own child's mouth, right? Because oh. uh, me and my wife are really... No, we're dentists. So we are really thorough about brushing my son's teeth. Mostly me, because I've just taken charge of that. And I said, I will do that because she does so much. I think, let me at least brush the kid's teeth. Okay, So uh, I'm very, very thorough with that. Yet, I was embarrassingly really upset and shocked about how much plaque I saw on the buckles and lingual's areas. Yeah. And I realized the mistake I was making was that I was just focusing so much on the occlusals that I just wasn't even going on the buckles and the lingual's palatals. And just just so good to see that. Uh, and then now I've been changing the way I brush and, and changing the position. So before uh, he'd be the same level as me. Now he's way below me so I can get better access and stuff. So sometimes I would encourage everyone to just yeah, bring their children in, look on the loops and, and see all these uh, issues. But if we're dentists and I see this in my own child, you've got to think about the, the public and Sometimes, you know, he's too sleepy. We're out somewhere. We're driving yep. home. He's asleep and we, we miss a night. You know, it happens. Yeah. So you think about the, the, the public and, and, and parents say to me, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, morning's a real struggle. We only yeah. really brush it at night, you know, and we had a good day. And so the, the, the actual state of affairs in, in the real world is, is not very pretty. Is, is that what you found as well? History taking about brushing habits. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I had exactly the same scenario. I examined my older daughter, Aria's sixes. And I could see plaque on the buckle margin of the upper sixes. And I brush them for her and AJ brushes them for her and she does them herself. And I thought, if we can't get rid of all that plaque, like, uh, yeah, it's the same. Yeah, I, I do find it's really variable. I think in practice now, I've got probably quite well-motivated patients because they're coming specifically, they're choosing to come and see a peds specialist. So I'm getting more of your twice daily brushes. I have some anti-fluoride parents, but we are getting these more twice daily brushes. But yeah, I've worked in all sorts of places and hospitals yeah and some people they're not brushing even every day they're brushing like a few times a week Mm -hmm. they've got split family situations so they might be going to their dads at the weekends or aunties or all different arrangements and they might say oh yeah i brush their teeth all the time but when they go to dads he lets them drink coke and they don't have a toothbrush you know so there's all i hear that all the time yeah Yeah. all different arrangements Mm -hmm. and i mean i think you, you can only give the advice based on what you know and see how they can fit it into their family situation. But yeah, and I think there's probably a lot of, oh yeah, we definitely brush twice a day when you think they probably don't brush twice a day because they're sitting in front of a dentist and they're telling you what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. and we just got to be very mindful of that. And uh, yeah, it was very refreshing for me to see that moan child. So we've changed habits, and uh-huh. uh, uh, when I see it on another child, now I just tell the I share the same story now with yeah. my parents. The story I share with parents. I look even me when I look at my own son child, I was missing areas. So you know, keep helping your child, and I will help you to help your child. I will coach you to see how you can get better outcomes with your child. Sure. Uh, just going back on the topic now, in terms yeah, of sure. abscess, yes, antibiotic suspension. At that point, it's too late. Obviously, a comprehensive examination, the importance yeah. of radi- radiographs. We, we We've stressed on that. What about, uh, here's a tricky one now, and I think the rest of the episode we'll be talking about this scenario is, let's talk about, instead of generalized caries, the localized caries on that, you know, four or five-year-old on a D, heavily caries, and now symptomatic. So it is difficult to make a a distinction on a child of, is this reversible papitis or is this 
irreversible pitis yeah. um, and whether you need to extract that tooth or yeah. which child nowadays is even suitable for pulpectomies. It's not mm-hmm. something that's commonly done in practice. Uh, and you know, I'd love to hear your views and, and guidelines, SECEP, etc. Sure. So, so I think the kids with the abscess, you'd, you'd be wanting to get them back to your full exam. And yeah, that sounds like a tooth that needs to come out for the tooth fairy, as I would say to them. And it's whether you think they can cope with that in primary care, whether you think they need to be referred to like the community or private specialist or wherever for sedation or general anaesthetic. And it's likely if they've got that one tooth with the abscess, they've probably got something else going on elsewhere. And then obviously putting in a thorough preventative regime. So we've kind of dealt with that one. And then if you're looking at your other children, so say you catch them a little bit earlier, you've got your four or five-year-old, they might have a carious D. It's really from your history, whether you think, it, and your x-rays, if you can get them, whether you think it's reversible or irreversible. And that can be difficult for a kid because they may not give you the same quality of history as an adult would. But you're looking for those kind of things like the lingering pain after they've stopped eating, wake at night time, needing painkillers, all those kind of things that are pushing you to your irreversible pulpitis. The reversible pulpitis would be the kind of, they have a cold drink and it hurts for a few seconds, it hurts on brushing, they're not woken up at night time, they're probably not needing painkillers. That's kind of your reversible. Or, or maybe Emma, the parent, would say that he's just refusing me to let me brush in that uh-huh. area yeah. and it's very yeah. resistant. Otherwise, okay, but he just won't let me brush it because it says it hurts. Can you please take a look? And then that's yeah. when you find a cavitated yeah. distal margin of a D or an E, for example. Yeah. And, and, and then at that point, yes, hopefully, if your child hasn't got abscess and you have a bit of time, take the radiograph yeah. and make the assessment. But let's say you're, this is where I'm, 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 I'm throwing tricky scenarios at you, so I do apologize once, but that's all right. you know, these are real world issues. You've got cool. deep caries. But the diagnosis is still reversal pitis. You don't think there's yeah. uh, getting up at night. It's not quite necrotic. It's not quite an abscess yet. These are really tricky ones to manage. Uh, yes, we can talk about whole crowns and stuff, and we can talk about uh, fillings. I actually recently read on a Facebook post as well recently, well, a filled D is a dead D. So we'll, we'll talk about uh, as well, yeah. basically, because a lot of times you, 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 you do direct restoration on a D, and then that tooth will abscess in about six months to, to two years. So let's talk about these very tricky decision-making yeah. okay. scenarios. Uh, please Sorry. offer some guidelines on that. So if you're seeing, so you've got that kid, you've probably got reversible pulpitis. If you've got any radiograph, you can't see any radiographic changes. And on a primary tooth, it's going to be in that interradicular area rather than at the apex of the tooth. Hence the vertical bite wings. Yeah, that's why they're so useful. So on those, I would want to be probably at that first visit trying to put some sort of temporary filling in that area. So trying to clean it out the best I can. Say I've got my 10 minute slot, 20 minute slot. I'm putting some kind of temporary filling to see if that tooth then settles down and then LA or no LA again tough questions uh, no right or wrong but yeah. just, I'd love to know you, what you do as a specialist what you advise and we can you know well, take that on board if you've only got a short appointment you don't think you're going to get LA then scooping it you know we're literally doing a temporary kind of filling scooping it and getting a temporary filling in there to try and just see if the symptoms settle and that's really just to get them out of pain and to get your diagnosis, then you get them back. But if it's not cavitated, then I guess you're going to purposely cavitate yeah, yeah. it just so then the, you the top are. of it and then get access? Then you probably are going to... Well, what I do is I use hall crowns. So I, I don't really... Mm-hmm. If I've got an MO or a DO filling, it's so much easier for the kid just to put a hall crown over it. You don't have to do... I'm really into minimally invasive dentistry. You don't have to do any prep. You don't have to do any caries removal. They, we know they work. They last. But not everyone has the materials. Not everyone has the equipment. Not everyone mm-hmm. knows how to do them. So 
I'll talk about other things, but it, what I would do is, is I would get them in. We, we will touch on Horcrowns, I think. It's really important. I also do Horcrowns, oh, big great. believer. I actually got a video on YouTube. I checked the other day. I got a video on YouTube for patients of me putting a Horcrown on a child. And I just saw it the other day. It's got 18,000 views and like parents oh. are watching it and just learning about that. Yeah. So, it's, it's, yeah, that's going well. But, yeah, I'm a huge fan of it. But, unfortunately, most colleagues I speak to, especially in busy practices, yeah. don't have the appetite to do it and don't uh, have the resources yeah. to do it. My principal won't buy me this £350 yeah. kit from 3M or whatever. Sure. So, uh, let's, let's touch on that very difficult scenario for the dentist whereby they've got deep caries uh, and they don't you know whole crown is just brilliant for that right yeah but then if we if, if we haven't got much time it's cavitated and you know, scoop out the the, the the mush and what kind of temporary filling would you be suggesting in that stage so irm or a resin modified mm-hmm. fuji something like that just to mm-hmm. get it in get them back when you've got time a week later do a full exam and book them in to have a proper filling done on that tooth which if you're going to really get it cleaned out you want to make the tooth numb you want to get good isolation which to me is just so much harder than placing a whole crown uh, much harder for me mm-hmm. and harder for the kid which is why i love them so much and we know from the research they don't last as well but you've got to work with what you've got so yeah i think let's talk about that let's make some clear recommendations that guys if you're if you're going to book a child in for you know you, you dealt with the emergency you got your 1.2 udas for example for those in the uk and you've addressed the tooth and, and dealt with the acute scenario of Before deep caries and you're going to bring bring them back in and you find out okay actually the contralateral second uh, deciduous molar also has caries surprise surprise yeah. you take the bite wings and there we are and now for for, for three udas or whatever that we're talking about NHS yeah. here, but it couldn't apply to anything you're going to do all that or even if you're private you're going to charge the patient for all that length of time to do the one side and the other side under LA which is going to be yeah, traumatic for the child traumatic for you let's just go ahead and say guys maybe now's the time maybe this podcast will be the one that remind you that we should perhaps be considering whole crowns because they are the best and is that what the SDCEP recommends as well? Uh, yeah they are kind of the recommended technique for multi-surface cavities in the primary dentition and they're just we've got loads of data on them now and they're shown just to last so well sometimes they come off but it's not the same as a failure of a filling where you might have secondary caries around it. You might have lost more of the tooth. It's kind of the crown's popped off and you're like, so what? If the tooth's okay, I'll put it back on. They're just so easy. I've never had one, Emma, that's come come away only because I don't do the, the numbers that a specialist sure. would do. When yeah. it comes away, do you find that it's just like leaves cement behind and it's like a nice uh, GIC crown that's sometimes. left inside? Yeah, sometimes. Or sometimes it's, it's come off in the crown. I find okay. that happens most if you've got one. So they, they come in set sizes for anyone who doesn't know. They're like two to seven. And I always say it's a bit like fitting a pair of shoes when you go shoe shopping. So you try on the different sizes, but they don't come in half sizes. So some kids are a half size. <laughs> so you've got to then, so you can feel it and it's kind of going on and off. It's not got that nice click. They're the ones that tend to come off for me because I can crimp them. So I haven't bought expensive crown crimpers. I use upper D forceps and I just use it to tighten the margins a bit, That's but a they can still rider. come off sometimes. Yeah. And uh, when I've been in that scenario, I know this isn't specifically about whole crowns, this uh-huh. te- technique, but let's talk about it. The whole crown doesn't come in half sizes. I love, I love that analogy yeah. of the shoes. That's brilliant. So, uh, so sometimes if you're going for a smaller one, because the bigger one is just going to get in the way of the contacts of the adjacent yeah, yeah. teeth. So you're yeah. picking a smaller one. So now you have to make your, your tooth that you're treating a little yeah. bit smaller and break the contacts. Yeah. Is that something how, how you would manage that, right? So, yeah. So I always put, sep- well, nearly always, unless there's space, I always put separators in a few days before. So, you know, the orthodontic rings, I put them on floss put separate in to get some space however if the tooth itself needs a bit of reduction i will either use so ortho ortho interproximal strips that you might do for ipr ipr for all yeah yeah sure. yeah um but being really careful because obviously they've got little lips in the way so you need to and i'm always a bit mm. nervous when i'm doing that 
Or the little saw ones can be quite handy okay. in that scenario. There's little saw ones that you can hold. They, they can be quite good for that scenario, yeah. Okay, yeah, I've not tried those. Or I'm going to do something like using like I think a really fine burr, but very carefully just a zip between the contacts. Or sometimes you need to do that to take off the bulbosity on a D if it won't seat mm -hmm. down over that or... Yeah, but no. Uh, Sometimes the issue is, Emma, and this is a real niche, tricky scenario, is because they have got cavitated caries, yeah. the adjacent teeth have tilted into yeah. the cavitations. Yeah. And, and that is the tricky scenario yeah. because in the base of the, the tooth at the CJ is wider than what you have uh, more coronally. And, and that's just the worst scenario, isn't it? Yeah. And then sometimes if they've got to that, you need to think about are they a restorable tooth? Is it better to lose this tooth? Sometimes I'm using the crown slightly rotated or using a different arch crown or yeah i've tried all sorts of things in the past okay we definitely take make an episode emma on on whore crowns just everything yeah. the defensive guide to whore crowns it's going to happen but let's get let's get it's me digressing sure. not you it's by the way emma. It's, it's me leading it to different tangents uh, but pain so uh yeah, deep carries uh, on that emergency appointment which is the main focus of today let's address it yeah uh, ideally use la but you know you you said that sometimes in a rush and if you can just use uh, hand instruments yep. to clean out the mush and yep. then bring that child back for definitive uh, assessment yes absolutely what if it's irreversible pulpitis on that child. Is there much place for extirpations and pulpectomies uh, in children? It's a, it's a very tough thing to wow. do for a child. Again, LA and uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what should a, a dentist do in, in that kind of irreversible pulpitis scenario? So, yeah, so really good question. I rarely do them, but they do have a place. So the place would be in a kid that you're really desperate to hang on to a tooth for some reason. They might have hypodontia, they might, there might be a reason that you don't want to extract it at this point. They might need to have hospital care. They might have a bleeding disorder, you know, all those kind of things. Or they might be a kid who's really well motivated. They haven't got loads of other cavities. They've just got this kind of one or two cavities. And you think, yeah, I could save that tooth. It hasn't got root resorption. So those are the ones you're going to focus your pulpotomies on. Or if you didn't want to do an extraction at that visit, so you felt that it was a bit much for the child. Although I find an extraction is easier than getting them to sit through a pulpotomy. I would find mm -hmm. that on the first visit, I would rather take the tooth out. Because I, I think if you can get the tooth numb, you can usually get the tooth out. It's the numbing that's the thing. And you need that for either procedure anyway. So, yeah, so I think they have their place. I think people are using them less and less, particularly because we have the options of selective caries removal. We don't need to go actively into the pulp. Like, you know, we used to get the cavity scratchy clean and we'd probably inadvertently remove the pulp and then have to do a pulpotomy and we're using but for irreversible pulpitis that that wouldn't really be an option no, right? no, or, uh... yeah yeah for irreversible pulpitis yeah so if you've got irreversible pulpitis your options are you can either extract that tooth you can unroof the pulp chamber and place something in the pulp chamber as a temporary measure like ledamix if you can get hold of it and temporize mm -hmm. over you can do a full pulpotomy on that day if you've got time so you're fully unroofing the pulp chamber you're leaving the pulp stumps so in the orifice to the, to the root canals and you're either placing ferric sulfate or MTA, and then you're filling that cavity and doing like a, a proper pulpotomy, which is going to take time and probably isn't going to be what you're doing on your emergency visit. Very true. And I rarely do them, to be honest. Or if you've got a really, really pre-cooperative kid and you know that they need a referral for general anaesthetic or inhalation sedation or something, but you're desperate to do something to get them out of pain, but you just know you're not going to be able to either extract the tooth or do a pulpotomy, kind of the least best option, but it is in the SDCEP guidance, would be to use the hand excavators, try and get as much out as you can, and place a dressing like Ledamix in that carrier's cavity with a temporary filling. But it's variable whether that gets them out of pain or not. But that's kind of your, yeah, 
the training. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't cover every single scenario. Sure. For those Patricia Rati on the app, please comment uh, in the community section or if you're watching on YouTube, please do uh, comment there and be great to see or on the Facebook group, various places. Just let's continue the discussion. You know, this is something that's very, very real world. In these scenarios where you've got a child with multiple carries and, and sometimes yeah. when I've referred to community, yeah. For child with multiple carriers, I've dealt with the acute situation. I refer to community because I think they'll benefit from inha- inhalation sedation. The letter I get back, and this is a little bit controversial. I get the letter back and it says, the child, when I saw them, was not in pain. Therefore, as per the fiction trial, we suggest just re- seeing them regularly, fluoride varnish, and they don't even mention SDF in the letter, I don't think. But yeah, fluoride varnish, and because the child's not in pain, you know, we don't need to see them. So this is... Currently, what community, uh, National Health Service community, are saying to us, they're saying that we're following the flick fiction trial. Okay. Yes, there's multiple cavities as carriers, but because the child's not in pain, the fiction trial suggests that you can just dip them in fluoride and, and, and keep things going. What are your personal and professional views on management of a child as per the, the findings from the fiction trial? And I don't know much about the fiction trial. If you, if you know, you can shed some light on that. It'd be great, it'd be great as well. So I think, it's, I think that's really hard. I think you would want to be making sure... I'm not saying you, but whoever's making this decision would want to be sure that the child hasn't got it. And the SDSEP guidance is quite good for this because it shows you some ideas of which teeth are likely to progress to pain. You'd want to be thinking, are these teeth likely to progress to pain before exfoliation? So your teeth that have got cavities like right close to the pulp and they're not they're not getting to an exfoliation age. Teeth that just kind of close cavities and they're not cleansable. You can't get in there with a toothbrush or fluoride and they're likely to cause pain. Those I would be a little bit worried about not doing something with. I mean, SDF I use a lot, silver diamine fluoride. And if you've got a nice, open, cleansable cavity, you can treat some, if the parents are willing, you can treat some of these teeth that you perhaps would have before extracted, providing there's no pulpal symptoms, with something like SDF. But leaving teeth just because the kid's not in pain and then they have to go back through the referral system again makes me a bit nervous, to be honest. I mean, I don't know the individual case. I'm so glad but... you're saying this because I feel the yeah. same way and I just feel, okay, maybe controversial. I feel fobbed off as a general dentist yeah. who, who's taken the effort to refer to the community and I feel sometimes feel fobbed off and I get it because these services are so busy and, yeah. and, I, and I get it. But I don't think as, as a nation, as a, we need to maybe look at how we're, you know, it's a big, bigger level, way bigger Indeed. than the podcast, right? So, but yeah, just thought I'd, I'd mention that. Now, um, you mentioned a really good point about cavities that are non-cleansable. Mm-hmm. So one one thing that general dentists have uh, advised and or something they do in practice is having that cavity, but then just drilling it a little bit to make it yeah, now yeah. cleansable. Yeah. What are your views on doing that and then monitoring an SDF and fluoride yeah. for that child who's not in pain and just to keep them out of pain? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable option. And again, I'll I keep mentioning the SDSEP guidance, but that's in there as well as an option. So yeah, you can open a cavity, make it cleansable. You'd want to make sure you had a good pulpal and periapex diagnosis so you know you've got healthy pulp or reversibly inflamed possibly and you haven't got any sign of infection because the last thing you want to be doing is sitting on infection because either you don't know because you haven't managed x-rays or you haven't managed to tell and then just whacking fluoride on it so you want to be sure that this is a healthy tooth that they can keep cleansable that they know how to keep cleansable and either putting fluoride in there or ideally sdf but it, it does make the teeth black 
So, it, yeah, it's not for everyone. And, and, and not the SCF, but the, the whole plaque management, it has to be right for the mouth. You know, if the child's struggling to use the yep. end of the toothbrush, and you're not going to just make it <laughs> cleansable because there's no cleansing happening. So it's got to be for the right motivated child and yep. parent, right? So uh, that goes without saying, I think. You mentioned earlier before we hit the record button about you know, a possible diagnosis that a GDP could make for a child in pain to do with MIH. Yeah. Can you just briefly describe for the GDP about uh, what is MIH, what kind of pain presentations, and just best advice on managing children with MIH in practice? So MIH, so molar incisor hypomineralization, which is a very long word, so I call it MIH, really, really common. It affects one in six children in the UK, so you will be seeing it in practice. And what this essentially is, is the first permanent molars, doesn't have to be all of them, can be one of them, can be all four, and sometimes the incisors have a qualitative defect of enamel. So that means the enamel is lower quality, it's reduced mineral content. We don't know quite why this happens, um, but there's lots of research and the current evidence seems to suggest it's some form of illness or illness in the mother in the last trimester of pregnancy, premature birth, difficult birth, illness up to age three, combined with genetic predisposition and then possible other factors, but it's not set in stone. These teeth that do form like One, one thing on the etiology, sure. Emma, is one yeah. thing I always uh, ask parents, I yeah. ask mum usually is, I don't know if this is, any, is the right thing or not, but interesting discussion. Every time I diagnose MIH, I look at the mum and I say, was this child a cesarean birth? And, it's just, mm-hmm. I just, and, and, and they say yes or no, we discuss it. Just, I don't know, I just felt as though I read somewhere that it's more, yeah. It, it, it's more linked with cesarean birth. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, premature birth. Yeah, yeah loads of things. Yeah, but nearly anything you can list in childhood is linked. Exactly. To yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I always do this as part of my medical history. Is I always ask about birth history, illnesses in the first few years, pregnancy history. Mm-hmm. Anyway, these teeth, so they're reduced mineral content. The way that you will notice them is they've got these really demarcated opacities, so clear areas of different kind of chalky colour of tooth. And it can be white, it can be brown, it can be yellowy. And sometimes when you see them, they will already be a bit broken and crumbled and broken down. These teeth, they're not as strong as a regular tooth. So they can break down on normal masticatory forces, so just eating and chewing. They can get caries more rapidly. They can be super, super sensitive. I've had children with this, and their teeth don't look so bad, so they're not broken, but you can see the opacities if you look. But they say it hurts to go out in the wind because the cold in Mm. their mouth is just changing the sensations in that area. And I see some kids, and they've got immaculate oral hygiene, but then they've got this one really gross six that's just caked in plaque. Because moving a toothbrush over it is just so exquisitely tender that they can't cope with it. And in these teeth are difficult to numb as well, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had one the other day with sedation, with articane. I struggled to get this tooth numb. Yeah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. they can be really difficult to anaesthetize. And, yeah, the way I explain it to parents is instead of having a helmet over the tooth to protect it, you've got a sieve. So everything is being transmitted <laughs> to the nerve that. and it's really, really sensitive. So, so this could, this is a whole lecture kind of talk in itself, but just kind of briefly, to get them out of pain, you've got to be working out is, is it just sensitive because it's a kind of a happy intact tooth that hasn't got any, it hasn't got any irreversible pulpitis or pulpal infection. So thus you don't need to be treating the pulp at this stage and it might need coverage because it's just basically sensitive because the whole tooth is just kind Passive. of coral. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or is it a tooth that because it's got MIH, it's broken down and you've got irreversible pulpitis and thus you need to be treating the pulp of the tooth. So you need to be either doing your root canal mm-hmm. treatment, your pulpotomy and those sort of things. I see more kids who've got just really sensitive teeth because they've yeah. got MIH. Same. And you can have this in ease as well. 
if you have it in the primary dentition, so in the ease, which my daughter does, you've got a one in four chance of having it in your sixes. So I always... Wow. Yeah. So they're really linked. I didn't know that. Yeah. So mm. you always tell the kids who I see who've got it in their primary teeth that when their sixes erupt, we need to have a really good look at them for signs of MIH. So, so let's go with the more common one, which yeah. which I see as well, MIH, a, a fair bit in our community. And it's just a super sensitive six, yep. which doesn't have uh, any active caries. It's a bit yellowish in colour. <laughs> and uh, all that I'm doing at the moment is just reassuring fluoride and, and, and that's it. Is there anything better that I could be doing to help this child's uh, sensitivity? Yeah. So there's some evidence for tooth mousse. So you can get children mm-hmm. to apply tooth mousse to those teeth. This is when you've got your milder sensitivity. You can be using tooth mousse and I get lots of patients to use that. It's quite expensive. It sells for about... 17- Amazon. You can get it from Amazon. Yeah, it right? sells for about 17, 18 pound yeah. a tube. But I tell them they only mm-hmm. need like a finger bit every night to rub on each tooth. So that's kind of first line. Second line would be thinking, do they need some coverage over the sensitive areas to stop, just to stop the kind of transmission of cold and hot and everything? And I use that Fuji triage you talk about quite a lot. Okay. So uh-huh. that can be, that is GC advertised that for use on hypermineralized teeth. And you can okay, use brilliant. that just quite simply with cotton wool isolation either side of the tooth. One tip I would have is don't blast cold air on these teeth because they're so sensitive. And if you are doing treatment on one of the teeth and you've anaesthetized it for whatever reason and your nurse has got the suction, just let them know to be careful around any other teeth because I've had it where the nurse has inadvertently touched another tooth that's got MIH and the one is numb but the other one goes because it's so sensitive. So yeah, so be really careful with that. Dry it with cotton wool and then... So this is under local anaesthetic though, right? No, no, no. Sorry, I'm, I'm digressing okay. again. This is just your kind of your temporary sure. measure. So you put in your cotton wool, you're not blasting cold air and you're rubbing cotton wool over it to dry it and then putting something over it to kind of seal it up like Fuji triage. Or and this is like the buckle surface? Anywhere that it needs to be, but it's less likely to last on the buckle surface. So I, I okay. find it lasts better on the occlusal. If after that, you're finding that most children after that, depending on how severe it is, will say it's better. You probably want to then review them and see. If they're saying it's better, but I can still feel it in certain areas, I might try and top it up. If they're saying it's made no difference and I can kind of tell the area of sensitivity is going areas that we can't cover because we can't do a crown from Fuji triage, they might need sort of kind of specialist assessment and I might do something like placing a stainless steel crown as a temporary measure until we look at timed extractions of those teeth and that's something that's can be quite useful in really hypermineralized teeth okay brilliant. I mean that MIH could be easily a whole lecture oh, yeah. we'll do the whole core crown on one day hopefully but MIH is yeah is a whole thing but it's in, the, main, the main point of mentioning it is just as a diagnosis that maybe some yeah. general dentists haven't got at the forefront of their mind just remember that I've been in scenarios where I've seen a child patient who in the past has been told off by a dentist and I had a look in the mouth that oh, hang on this isn't your fault this is MIH yeah. and they're like well, and parents are like what's that well, we had never heard of this before was it, actually this is, what you're, this, is, this is why they've got the white spot on their front tooth and that this is why that and they're yep. like oh it's all making sense now so i tell the patient it's not you don't worry yeah it's, it, it's the tooth but let's see what we can so another lesson here is you know don't make the child i mean don't make any child feel bad it's you know caries and children is not the child's fault let's remember that right in, in a way ultimately it's a conversation that needs to be had with the parents as well but especially for mih don't victimize the child would you would you agree with that? oh yeah i see lots and they come in and they say uh, i can sometimes tell just from the history that it's going to be mih because they'll say He's never had a filling in his teeth. They've been perfect. Suddenly he got his adult teeth and started having. Mm, and I think that is a classic. Yeah. yeah. But yes, yeah, so sometimes they can say, I don't know what they feel really guilty. I don't know what we've done. They don't really have 
squash or juice or coke or whatever. And yeah, I, I really agree with that. And it can happen on the primary. Uh, and- yeah, so sometimes you do. Yeah, I didn't know that. Think. Yeah, I, I didn't know it could happen in the primary. So that's yeah. been, that's been really useful for me actually. And uh, Emma, I, I know I threw some really tough questions mm. for you, some really high level public health matters that, that that I threw at you. So apologies for all these curveballs that I threw at you. But thanks so much for for answering so well on all of them and giving some guidelines for children with abscesses, children with reversal pitis in the real world emergency scenarios, irreversible pitis, how pulpectomies are very difficult to do, and you just make so much sense if you're going to numb up a patient and do a pulpectomy, then in that child who's got that deeper caries, they're probably not a suitable candidate for a popectomy in the first place or popotomy, as you, as you said. One last thing, actually. Mm-hmm. International variations yeah. in management children. I find in Arab countries, uh, from what mm-hmm. I see, my colleagues and stuff, they're much more pro-root canals in, in, yeah. in, in, in pediatric teeth and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the mantra there is really, let's save these teeth as much as possible. Yeah. Whereas in the UK, we're more pro-extraction. Any experience that you've had, I uh, just want to share anecdotally about variations culturally or in, internationally amongst the management of, of, of such teeth yeah i know i noticed that too and i think in the uk we are quite pro extraction however i do know that in different countries they have different guidelines and legalities for using different methods of sedation and general anesthetic so what we've got available to us in primary care is quite limited to manage children it's local anesthetical inhalation sedation really so you've got a limit of what you can achieve whereas in for example the usa they do deep deep sedation in lots of regular dental offices so they do do different types of treatments i saw an interesting case yesterday actually and that was from abroad i think it was from jordan and it was for the mih on the sixes but they'd all been root treated they'd all been crowned and because that is the thing that lots of places like to do because they don't want to take out teeth however we were then having to take out some of these teeth when this girl was 15 because they'd failed by this point so i just i think extraction has its place sometimes to let that child get to a healthy you know, healthy mouth that they're not having to maintain and, well, they do have mm-hmm. to maintain, but not kind of, you know what I mean, not having root canal. Carry the baggage thing. of a root canal for the rest of their life, right? Exactly. At such, a, such a young age. Exactly. Emma, thank you so much for, for sharing all the views. We're going to write some summary notes and put the SDSEP guidelines uh, available for everyone. Uh, please tell us where you work for a- anyone in the city who wants to refer patients and, and, and learn more from you. How can they reach out to you? That kind of stuff, please. Yeah, so I'm, I work in a private practice that I own with my husband in Hassex in West Essex. We're about 20 minutes north of Brighton. It's called Greystone Referral Centre and you can find us at greystonereferral.com or you can email me on emma at greystonereferral.com for any advice or questions. And do you do like, because I know a lot of special, I know you're really busy with with three kids and the 18 month baby, <laughs> yeah. but do you do any like uh, BDA lectures and, 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 and that kind of stuff? I, I find a lot of specialists do that. Yeah, I mainly do lectures in our practice at the minute. So we run kind of a regular lecture series and yeah, so we do lots in our practice. They're all advertised on our website. Amazing. Well, if you're if you're local to, to Emma, check it out. My wife actually uh, is oh. is doing her MSc in Peds, and she really wanted to, to learn more from you as well. So I'll make sure she visits you for one of your talks yep. at your practice as well. Emma, thank you so much yep. for giving your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. There we have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Emma Ray Chowdhury, for sharing these real-world gems. I threw a lot of curveballs at her, very much higher-level stuff, which is beyond what you can discuss in one episode. And I did apologize to her at the end after the recording, and she said it was very difficult to answer some of those questions because it's difficult to apply it to real-world scenarios and real-world cases, and you just can offer general guidelines. So remember that we give you guidelines, and you have to use your best judgment. And so great guidelines to follow on from this is if you haven't read the SDC, 
step guidelines. We've got a link to them below. Do download them. Do refer to them. In fact, the best thing to do right now is just go through it once. Spend 15 minutes, go through it right after this episode right now, and that will really cement all the things that we are talking with Emma today. If you're part of Protrusive Premium, which is my membership section, you can access that on your laptop computer on protrusive.app, or if you download the iOS or Android app. Premium subscribers can answer some CPD questions now and get your certificate. So Marie will email you a one-hour CPD certificate for listening to this educational episode. All you have to do is answer a few questions. There's also premium notes. So the, the notes that you usually see on the side, they are available as a PDF for you to download as well, which I know Patrice Ranti love and they print them and they like to refer to them as like a revision or summary. And lastly, I did encourage that if you have some specific scenarios, comment below. Let's discuss. Let's continue the conversation so we can help serve our patients more. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end once again. I'll catch you same time, same place next week.